Men in Balance Radio, I'm Jerry Hancock. We now have an interview with Charles O'Dell, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Dilworth Center for Dependency. Charles, thanks for joining us. Jerry, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to talk about the subject of dependency, especially in men, and especially mm-hmm. as it affects families and as, as it affects individuals uh, in their life pursuit, for example, especially in careers, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to first ask you a question that... Um, comes from some exposure I had recently to an article talking about the spiritual nature of dependency and that dependency to some degree is the result of sort of a spiritual vacuum. Would you agree with that? I would. I think, uh, you know, spiritual uh, pursuits for anyone can be challenging. Uh, Developmentally, you know, children tend to kind of grow into it as they get a little older. And for some people, I think, you know, they come come to a spiritual enlightenment uh, more, in a more difficult way than others. With that said, what we see with addiction is a, an absorption with self. It's almost as if, you know, as the saying goes these days, it's all about me. Uh, and what happens is, as people become, as they become more obsessed with the drug, the substance, what it's doing for them. Uh, they lose sight with what is going on around them and the needs of others. And I think as addiction progresses, it gets worse. Mm. So we, we really do see a, uh, not only a, a physical and, and mental characteristic of, of addiction, but, but we certainly see the spiritual uh, characteristic or lack thereof included. Yeah. So if, if you define spirituality, as I've heard it defined, as being able to get outside yourself and yes. see the needs of others, this is sort of the reverse of that, right? I, I really think it is. And and what we see when here at the Dilworth Center, where I work, uh, which is a treatment center for alcoholism and drug addiction, what we see is uh, a spiritual vacuum pretty much in everybody who's admitted into, into treatment. So in the course of the treatment, do you address that? Do you talk in those terms or not? Well, I think we do. I think, you know, if you look at some of the uh, more popular recovery programs these days, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, AA has been around for for 80 plus years. And it has commonly been referred to as a, a spiritual program as opposed to a religious program, mm-hmm. meaning that it's up to the individual to determine uh, their higher power, right. and no hi- higher power is off limits. So it's a, it's more of a personal choice, and we we concur with that here at Dilworth. Uh, our our desire is to help people become aware of something bigger and smarter than just them, mm-hmm. something that can help them in their recovery. After all, usually what we see is a person's best efforts at running their lives have landed them in the treatment center. Yeah. Their best efforts are not going to get them out. That's, that, that's like trying to fix a flat tire with a flat tire. They need a new roadmap. Yeah, and that actually is the first step of the 12 steps, right? Well, it is. I think, you know, what the first step says is we admitted we were powerless over our addiction mm-hmm. or alcohol, and our lives had become unmanageable. In essence, that's saying that I, I am powerless over my craving to re-experience intoxication. Yeah. And, you know, powerlessness over a disease is nothing new. I mean, if I had diabetes, I couldn't control it with willpower alone. I, I would need to go to a physician, 
a power greater than myself for advice on how to handle that. I can't cure myself. Um, and, and that's the spirit behind, I believe, mm-hmm. the first step. I read a um, medical article recently that described um, what was expected in terms of amount of drinking per for men and women, and it talked about anything more than two drinks a night for a man was considered heavy drinking. That seemed like a low amount. Yeah, it can be. You know, whenever you read research, um, you're gonna you're gonna find uh, certain terms defined differently. Uh, regular use, heavy use, or subjective terms, mm-hmm. and what may be heavy for one person may be light for somebody else. So I think uh, what we look at when when we're looking at at uh, trying to define certain certain behaviors, anything in which a person drinks to the point of intoxication, and could be considered heavy use. And, and for some people, because of their weight or what have you, they may be able to drink two or three drinks and really not show it too much, whereas somebody else might drink two or three and become visibly um, intoxicated. So I assume that applies to impairment, too. I mean, you, the same person, a uh, heavier person, might drink three or four drinks before it affects their driving, for example. Right. The other side of that, however, uh, is the fact that most alcoholics have a very high tolerance. They can drink five or six and not show it too much, for example. And that can be a symptom of dependence or or alcoholism and certainly would be considered impairment, say, by legal standards if they were to be pulled over by a police officer and given a breathalyzer, they'd fail the test. Mm -hmm. So that was actually my next question is uh, how does an individual know or do you think most individuals do know already that they are dependent? You know, that's a really good question, Jerry, and my, my experience has been that most people who are dependent, or alcoholic rather, don't know it, you know, which is, which is rather ironic, particularly given the fact that most alcoholics uh, have impairment in more than one area of their lives. For example, their, their work may be adversely affected, their relationships with their spouses may be adversely affected, they may even have uh, physical ramifications of you know, liver problems, for example. But in spite of these impairments, uh, they still are not aware that they are alcoholic. Uh, you know, I, I say, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek that you could hook them up to a lie detector machine, ask them if they were alcoholic, they would tell you no, and they'd pass the test. Wow. You know. So, but on the other hand, I hear alcoholics say that every day, pretty much, they said, I'm not going to drink today, mm-hmm. and, and yet they can't do that. Or, yeah. or is there a huge progression from the point you talked about to what I just mentioned? I think there is. Uh, for, for many people who we have seen and treated we have um, had reported to us that they were able to drink successfully for years. Successfully, you know, is another subjective term. But Staying functional. Yeah, they're functional. And, and what happens is over time, things begin to worsen. Uh, no one typically progresses from entirely successful drinking to entirely unsuccessful drinking overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do see, however is that the progression of alcoholism is much more rapid in teenagers 
than it is in adults. Hmm. It tends to progress more rapidly the younger you are when you begin to drink. And say, why, why would that be? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, one is, is, is if you look at the, uh, uh, the time at which human beings mature, physically mature, um, most most uh, physicians will tell you it's around the age of 25 or 26. And, and one of the last areas of a person to mature is the frontal lobe area of the mm -hmm. brain, which, among other things, allows us to use our intellect over our emotion. It's almost as if it provides for us a behavioral governor of sorts yeah. in which we can abstain from overindulging or overreacting. Kids... Teenagers are notorious for leaping before they look. Mm. And if you get that type of, say, teenage impulsivity, throw alcohol or drugs into the mix, perhaps coupled with a genetic predisposition for developing alcoholism or addiction because it runs in the family, what we'll see as a result of that is a rapid progression of symptoms. I have seen uh, full-blown cases of chronic chemical dependency in adolescents who have only been using for six months. Wow. And, and that's kind of rare with adults. Yeah. We, it, it occurs over a period of years. Yeah. Um, in most of the AA meetings that I've been to and the literature I've read, almost everybody who becomes dependent says at some point they realize they were different from other yeah. people and that the, the drug or the alcohol helped them get past that. Yeah. What's that about? Well, that's a good question, too. I think part of it may depend upon the time in their life when they began to drink. You know, I've got two teenage sons, and one of them is uh, in the eighth grade, and, and he feels different from the other kids. And, and I think that's normal. I think for many adolescents, feeling different from your peer group is, is kind of a chronic condition that yeah. they learn to deal with. So if you have someone who is feeling a little bit different or apart from, and they start drinking or drugging, and they immediately fit in, in my mind, it doesn't necessarily mean that feeling different was the cause of the dependency so much as the drug itself fixed Mm -hmm. this discrepancy within the human condition. With people who are not dependent, it would not fix them in that manner. The, the people who are dependent tend to have an elevated sense of euphoria when they drink or use, which is biologically unique to the dependent population. So are we saying that most teenagers, for example, would feel different from others, but the one with maybe a genetic predisposition might choose alcohol as a way to deal with that? They might. Well, they, genetic predisposition is a risk factor for addiction. Yeah. Not everybody who develops addiction has the genetic predisposition, but many kids who begin to drink with going into it with a genetic predisposition really are at high risk of crossing that line quickly. So it, it's one of, it's one of the uh, biological determining factors for, for uh, early onset of addiction. I've got a sort of a chicken and egg question for you. It seems that um, uh, heavy users of alcohol or drugs have typically also relationship issues. Are the relationship issues 
leading to the addiction or is it the other way around or is it yeah it's probably a little bit of both i think you know i think i think relationships for people can be difficult under the best of conditions you know uh, you get married you have kids uh it's a monumental task you know raising a family and 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 these days and times uh, uh, having an adequate income to support yourself i mean you know we see a lot of uh, a lot of people without work right now so I think under the best of conditions, uh, relationships can be difficult. But you throw alcohol and drugs in on it, and mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, gosh, throwing gasoline into a fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think part of it is relationships are difficult going in, but the other part of it is if, if you have a dependency upon a substance and you're in a relationship, it will adversely affect mm-hmm. that. I've got a friend who's in recovery who says that uh, if you stop drinking at whatever age you stop uh, or started drinking, your emotional development pretty much stopped at that mm-hmm. point. So when you when you stop drinking, you're pretty much back where you were emotionally when you yes. started. Is that true? I think it is, particularly with teenagers. Um, when you have somebody who's in a very dynamic stage of human development, which of course is being a teenager, lots of things are going on. If the drug use begins in those days, uh, the emotional maturation process does seem to cease. So if you've got somebody who, say, is, is 16 when they start drinking and drugging, and they develop an addiction and then sober up at age 26, for example, what you're going to have is a 26-year-old with the emotional maturity of a 16-year-old. Mm. And I, that, that's very common. That's more often the rule than the exception. So, so walk me through the process for uh, if someone shows up here uh, saying they're desperate for help, they've tried other things, and they come here. What, what's the process? How do you work through that? Well, the first thing to do is simply pick up the phone and give us a call. Uh, I think uh, you know, one of the things that we do here is we don't have any answering machines, so when people call us, they get a live person on the line, and I think that's important because sometimes people call only when they become ready to call. In AA, they refer to it as a moment of clarity, that, that I've, I've, I know I've got a problem and I need to talk to somebody. If at that point they call somebody and they get a recording, uh, they might just forget it. You know? mm-hmm. So that's why we tend to answer our own phones. Um, secondly, come in for an assessment. That's what we're going to refer people to do. An assessment is really a process by which we interview the individual to determine at least two pieces of information. Number one, whether or not in their case they're experiencing a true dependence. Um, The lay term is alcoholism or drug addiction. We're looking for the presence or absence of that. The presence of addiction is in fact a game changer meaning that if a person has addiction, you go down one path. If, say, you're only abusing and you're not really addicted yet, Mm. then you take a different path. Here at the Dilworth Center, we treat addiction. So if a person is assessed to be dependent, we would treat them or offer to treat them here or to refer them to another treatment program. If they're not dependent, they would take a different path. The, the other thing that we want to make sure we determine in an assessment is the level of care a person needs. If a person is dependent, for example, they may be able to do it outpatiently. 
On the other hand, they may need to go inpatient. Furthermore, some people even need detoxification, so right. they would have to be hospitalized. So there are n- numerous routes once, once you start the process. That's right. And, and the, what a person I feel needs to know is what direction would be most effective for them. You know, everybody's different. Right. And we want to tailor the uh, recommendations to the needs of the individual. Well, since um, alcoholics are typically in denial to start with, how how will somebody have that moment of clarity to call you, or what's the what's the first indication that they really do need help? Yeah, how they get the moment of clarity is is something that that I wish I could bottle mm. and and sell uh, or give away. Um, you never know what's going to create within the person the desire to get well. I will tell you this, that at least half the time we get calls, they're not from the alcoholic or the addict themselves, but they're from family members who have a concern about their family member, and they're wanting help. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fine. That's a good place to start. We usually invite the family members to come in, sit down, talk with us, and develop a game plan as to how they can help their individual. Um, to perhaps more... Um, specifically address your question. I heard a Catholic priest tell me one time many years ago that pain is God's gift to the alcoholic. Mm. And I think what he meant by that was is that alcoholics don't tend to get well simply because they want to get well. Some do. Most don't. Most of them come into treatment when the pain of recovery has become less than the pain of continuing to use. Mm. And so coming into treatment is a better alternative in their mind than staying out there continuing to drink. But, but many people, um, my experience has been anyway, many people can lose jobs and marriages and everything else and still not be ready, is that yeah, right? Yeah, it really is true. Um, you know, I guess that's a testimony to what the human body can withstand. Mm. You know, some people just can take that level of pain and discomfort for a long, long time before they, before they surrender and, and get into recovery. Others you know, may bottom out sooner. Uh, Everybody's different, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I think the biggest mistake that family members make sometimes is they rescue alcoholics from the pain of their addiction. You know, if somebody, for example, gets a DWI, their family members will bail them out, get them a lawyer, and ensure that no more problems are, are, you know, experienced. Oftentimes, in other words, families, because they love their family members, may end up doing the wrong thing. Becoming enablers. Be- yeah, that's in popular vernacular, that's, that's the term enablers. And, you know, it's really a process by which a person does not allow the alcoholic or addict the privilege of experiencing the consequences of their actions. Right. So the route is... Pr- even maybe, even though it may be more painful, is probably faster if someone does experience the pain. Yes, I, I think most alcoholics who come into treatment, most addicts who come into treatment, carry with them uh, a great degree of, of guilt and, and shame and regret and resentment and a lot of discomfort that comes along with, with a, um, 
a lot, you know, consequences associated with their drinking. Now, I know you've tried to involve the family in the recovery process, but if, if somebody doesn't have much of a support system, uh, does that diminish their chances for success? No, not necessarily. You know, that's really why these mutual help groups in the community work so well. Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, for example, Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Even if you have no one in your life, you can go to these meetings, get to know people who are very similar to yourself and gain the uh, support that may be absent in any other way. So, so I'm, a, I'm a personally a great believer in, in the mutual help groups. And AA, I, I think it's the, the best ball game in town. And what about Al-Anon for the folks who can't get their patient to come in? Yeah, absolutely critical. You mm-hmm. know, I can't speak highly enough for Al-Anon. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what you got to do if you've got a family member who has a problem, or if you have a problem yourself, is you just got to take that first step. You know, I think this disease breeds in silence, in secrecy. And once you start airing it out, for example, admitting that either I have a problem or my family member has a problem, by giving yourself permission to get well in that manner, things begin to happen. You've just got to be willing to talk about it and get some help. Uh, my experience has been nobody can do this on their own. And even if they could, they would probably be miserable as they could be. You know, we, we've, one of the great privileges in my life, certainly, are my associations with family and friends. And I, you know, that, that, that's probably true with most people. Yeah. You know, and I, I think you've got to let people in. Yeah. One last question about the the stigma of alcoholism. Um, it's only been relatively recently that we acknowledged it to be a disease and not just a moral flaw, I guess. Yes. So uh, are we making progress in that area or not? I think we are. Uh, the, the American Medical Association went on record as early as 1955 declaring alcoholism a disease. Um, and... Uh, but, you know, as is the case with most things, it takes a while for the public to catch up to that. Um, mo- most researchers today refer to addiction as a brain disease. And all that really means is, is that the brains of alcoholics react differently um, to alcohol and substances than the brains of normal people. Uh, within the alcoholics and addicts, they have, if you will, an allergic reaction to the drug. Um, in that the drug creates within them an obsession and compulsion to repeat the experience of intoxication. This is absent in the brains of non-alcoholics and non-addicts. Mm. You know, when I think of uh, addiction, I think of, of uh, things like uh, allergies to peanuts. Right. I, yeah. I've got a kid who's uh, got a friend in school who's allergic to peanuts. Everyone in my son's class is asked not to bring peanut products to school because this individual in class can have a really bad reaction. You know, peanuts are not the problem. I've got a kid who plays baseball, and when I go to his baseball games, I take a big old bag of peanuts. You know, I love peanuts. doesn't really have much of an effect on me, except maybe he adds a few pounds, but... I don't have the allergy to peanuts, so peanuts don't bother me. 
this kid in my kid's school, he has an allergy, he can't touch him. Yeah. The problem is the allergy. Right. And, and this analogy is, is entirely relevant to um, the disease of addiction. Addiction doesn't come in drugs, it comes in people. Yeah. And if a person has the allergy, they're going to react differently to the drug and they're going to go down that path. And I think the public is beginning to get this on the whole. I've been doing this work for 30 years, and it's certainly a whole lot better now than it was 30 years ago. In wrapping this up, um, a lot of guys are going to be listening to this who may suspect that they have an issue with alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to them to do some self-examination to get them on a path of maybe dealing with that? Well, that's a good question. You know, if you go to the Alcoholics Anonymous website, do a search for Alcoholics Anonymous, they, they have some, uh, like I think it's 20 questions you can ask mm. yourself. Uh, and if you, if you take that quiz uh, honestly, then it may provide some level of insight. Um, as a professional treatment provider, I would also encourage people you know, to visit our website, dilworthcenter.org, um, and look on there and give us a call and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I think, again, it goes back to reaching outside of yourself for some assistance. Alcoholics Anonymous is a wonderful organization, the Dilworth Center, other treatment providers. They all are in a position to provide insight, I think, as, as long as someone's willing to take that first step and reach out. Charles Odell, thanks so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Uh, appreciate all the work you're doing for dependency as well. Thank you, Jerry. It's been my pleasure. This is Men in Balance Radio. Thanks for listening.